Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Inspiring authors and readers since 2006. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, episode 266. Max Gladstone, Full Fathom 5. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward, author of the recently published novelette Scavenger, an authorized tale in Hugh Howey's Sand Universe. Been having fun with that. I am plotting out the rest of uh, my story, and I don't want to give away any spoilers to how how it turns out. Scavenger started out as a standalone novelette, and um, I'm figuring out ways to expand it. So getting started on that for the fans that have written reviews that are encouraging me to write more. Thank you. Today's episode is sponsored by S. Ron Mars, a science fiction author who just released a short story called Eat Fish or Die. You can find it on Kindle and Audible as an audiobook. We have two coupons for a free audiobook. To enter, all you have to do is sign up to our newsletter before the next podcast airs next week. I want to mention, we've got a jam-packed week. There's a lot of books coming out this week. Uh, Max Gladstone, our guest for today's show, his third book in the Craft Sequence series, Full Fathom 5, comes out. Uh, He's also going to be releasing a short story on Wednesday at Tor.com. Today we had a book review on the website for Half a King by Joe Abercrombie. Tuesday, we're going to have our SF book releases this week, uh, and we're going to have an excerpt and a giveaway from Steven Erickson's new novella, The Worms of Bleermouth. Wednesday, we're going to have a review of The Quantum Thief and The Fractal Prince, and I'm going to say this guy's name wrong, I'm sorry, Hanu Rajanemi. He is releasing the third book, The Casual Angel, this week. We've also got an article on Stephen King's use of technology in his horror and my review of Love Minus 80 will be airing on Friday. So anyway, lots of stuff going on at the website. I hope you enjoy our show today. Here's a sample from the audiobook of Eat Fish or Die. You know what I like about having a plasma rifle shoved in my mouth? I never have to brush afterwards, that's what. So anyway, there I was on a bleak planetoid in the outer rim, handcuffed and on my knees. A pissed-off Casago soldier was making me suck the business end of his gun. The problem is, it's hard to talk when your mouth is full of tungsten alloy. Articulating yourself ain't easy. And muffled words often lead to issues with the alien translator. I wanted to say, would you mind getting that thing out of there? But the words get all screwed up, you see. What I end up saying sounds like, what do you mind getting out of there? If I was lucky, my translator would reply, say what? If I was unlucky, it would spit out something like, Woody mind gets thing mated in otter's hair. Okay, I am looking forward to hearing the rest of that story. Before I forget, thank you to Rob Matheny for doing our music, the new intro and outro. Fantastic job, Rob. Thank you very much. Now, without further ado, enjoy this interview with Max Gladstone and Carl Engel Laird. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Today we have on the line two folks I'm very excited to chat with. Uh, First, my co-host, who works at Tor as an associate editor, 
I am an editorial assistant for Tor.com. Okay. Uh, Carl Engel Laird. Hi, Carl. Hey, Timothy. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Very good. I've already made my first mistake, so we're going to be good from here. Uh, it's and, cool. <laughs> and then our main guest is Max Gladstone, author of Three Parts Dead, Two Serpents Rise, and Out. I believe we're going to try and get this out the week that it releases uh, Full Fathom 5 uh, from Tor. Welcome, Max. Thanks very much for having me, Timothy. And Carl? You're welcome. Hi. <laughs> I, I thought you Pleasure would, to be here. I thought he was going to uh, throw a jab at Carl or something because you guys <laughs> know each other. Uh, <laughs> for... no, I mean, Carl's, Carl's a nice guy. Why would I throw jabs at Carl this early in the podcast? Save <laughs> all the jabs for later. This isn't Twitter. We don't have to open with aggression. <laughs> we just need to close with it. I'll start thinking up aggressive things to say about you in the next 20 minutes or so. So for our listeners who haven't heard of, it's called the craft sequence, right? Yep. Uh, for those who haven't heard of this, uh, introduce the series for our listeners. Wow. So the series is a um, globe-spanning exploration of the soul-destroying magical system that we call late millennial capitalism, right? So you have uh, a bunch of necromancers running around in pinstriped suits and gods with shareholders committees and bankruptcy proceedings that look an awful lot like the raising of massive undead creatures. And each one of the books has looked at a kind of different aspect of this. The first book, Three Parts Dead, was looking at the uh, basically a chapter 11 process being held on on a god. You have an immense, immaterial, ostensibly immortal entity that's died and has left uh, people who have substantial interests in its well-being kind of bereft. And uh, coincidentally, it's the, the city that's sustained by the god's radiance and love and, and fire, in this case specifically, is going to start falling apart for want of you know heat and power and things like that. So our main character, Tara Abernathy, is a junior associate at a necromancy firm who's part of a case team that's trying to bring the god back to life and starts uncovering all sorts of weirdness in that process. The Two Serpents Rise, the second book, was about water rights and basically what happens when you have a desert city that's gotten along just fine because, you know, the rain god keeps things going. But then when you have a revolution and the rain god gets killed, uh, whose job is it to make things work then? So you end up with this kind of... Uh, necrocracy or sort of lich kings running water utilities and trying to desperately bring in enough uh, enough water to keep people from dying of thirst and this most recent book full fathom five is kind of a cross between various island religions and offshore banking traditions and mm -hmm all kinds of crazy financial madness. Basically, uh, one of the main characters, Kai, is a priestess who makes fake gods in which people can kind of hide their souls and their powers so that they don't need to sacrifice to other gods who happen to rule whatever kingdoms or lands they're passing through. But the creations that she's building, they start dying on her. Um, and she starts investigating why most of her bosses and her coworkers think this is just something that happens from time to time. But Kai thinks that there's something, some deeper problem that's underlying their deaths. And she thinks that nobody else is paying enough attention to it. So she starts trying to suss this out, but then gets, because of this, kind of considered a little bit unstable and sidelined and still pursues the investigation. 
Meanwhile, elsewhere on the island in the kind of the undercity is a is a young girl who's a leader of a gang of refugee kids. And she's trying to get off because on the island they have a kind of criminal justice system that revolves around putting people into brainwash golems until they figure out um, that they are loyal to the local island society. But she runs into a bunch of problems trying to do that. And then there's some issues of her own loyalty to the gang that she's keeping around and to the gods that they serve, many of whom are, are dying over time. And that's kind of those are some of the things that are going on. And then we have a bunch of, you know, slam poetry and murder and general skullduggery and God sneaking around and espionage and the perils of nonprofit management, you know, usual stuff like that. <laughs> Excellent job. I, I understand uh, that was a huge question to try and sum up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Carl um, was recommended to me to be a co-host uh, from Artie over at Tor. Uh, she said, uh, you know, I, I think it would be cool to have another super fan like we had with Sarah Chorn when we interviewed Elizabeth Bear. And so she recommended Carl. Uh, so Carl, I'm curious to hear about how you came across Max's stuff and, and how you became a fan. When I started at Tor.com, I wasn't in, in editorial yet. I was in production for the website. And I was doing a very boring HTML task to a review of one of Max Gladstone's, well, two, three parts dead, Max Gladstone's first book. And the review started with an explanation that this was a very interesting book that is about necromantic bankruptcy law. Which is not something I'd ever heard. That's not a combination of words I thought was possible. <laughs> but any combination of words turns out to be possible in this amazing universe. And then I saw it was a tour book, so I could go downstairs and get it for free. And I was massively rewarded for my efforts. Both by a book, a, a series that is consistently surprising me with how deep and interesting the world is. And with an author who seems to put out one of these amazing books every year, which is not something I grew up with. <laughs> I also I have to. I'm also obligated by my boss to pay uh, mouse service to how wonderful the cover design is. The cover design is wonderful. I've been really well served by just the whole um, art team over at Tor and um, by Irene and by Chris McGrath, who has produced a series of amazing covers, uh, cover paintings for these books. I, I was drawn in by the image of Tara immediately. She has so much confidence and certainty that she belongs as the protagonist of a fantasy universe that I had to read about her. <laughs> yeah, that's it exactly. I mean, I was a little terrified going into the whole cover process because I, I grew up on a tradition of covers that really didn't have all that much necessarily to do with the contents of the book. And I was concerned with having a character on the cover who looked like the character actually looked inside and that there was this clause in my contract as is very very common that just says basically authors don't have final approval over covers so i was ready to roll with it and see what happened and i was i couldn't have been more pleased when i saw that cover came out i was thinking okay this is good we're gonna do this yes i love those covers too it's hard to choose which one might be my favorite uh but that first cover with Tara for Three Parts Dead, it does reflect the beauty and the prose as well. I think the cover and the prose are equally impressive. Uh, and so I'm curious, Max, what was your writing journey up to the point of selling to Tor? Well, first, thank you very much for the compliment. I, I work really hard on the prose for these books, so it's good to hear that appreciated. I've been writing 
basically my entire life, you know, we could go back to kid stories of my parents finding me when I was too young to form complete sentences sitting in the living room with a notebook making little, not drawing in the notebook, but making sort of vertical and horizontal squiggles within the lines, mm-hmm. sort of line by line on college ruled paper. And it just kept going from there. I wrote um, a bunch of novellas when I was younger and finally it was active on sort of various Usenet forum role-playing games, uh, wrote for a internet site that's, I think, since unfortunately closed its doors called the Fantasy Power League, like 240,000 word long apocalyptic fan fiction superhero monster mash, which was excellent. <laughs> and by the time I was done with that, I thought to myself, well, I could just keep doing this like sort of forever. And that was probably the first time I thought that writing professionally, like getting books published was something that I really should try to do. Um, And so I built the first book and it fell over and then sank into the swamp. And I built the second book and that also fell over and sank into the swamp. And then the (laughs) third one caught on fire and fell over and sank into the swamp as these things usually go. Yeah, I was all over the map. I kept coming back to science fiction and fantasy because that's kind of my home genre. But there's, you know, there's a novel that I wrote that's on my shelf. That's a sort of expat novel set in Beijing about mixed martial arts fighters. And there's a a novel in the trunk that's about trying to find Genghis Khan's tomb. And there's a novel in the trunk that I couldn't even begin to possibly describe. And Finally, I came back from spending a few years in China and um, was looking for work at about the time that the financial crash happened and talked about this a little bit here and there elsewhere. But um, I had this intimation watching the uh, reporting and hearing the analysis on the crash that there was this immense sort of spiritual disaster that had just happened that you know, immense amounts of damage had been done to the economy, but you couldn't point to a smoking crater. There was no physical scarring of the earth that marked the passing of J.P. Morgan or something like that. So I I was thinking about magical warfare and the death of ostensibly immortal beings and how in certain ways the world that we inhabit could be really instructively refigured as a fantasy setting kind of through a glass darkly by um, imagining finance as magic and uh, value as sort of spiritual stuff. And that took me off into spinning around um, a bunch of theological reading that I'd been doing. Um, So anyway, it was all of that stuff was going into the first draft and then all of these other books that I had written. Probably the biggest Jump, though, was taking that draft and then scouring it. I'd never edited a manuscript like this before. I think the initial draft of Three Parts Dead was something on the order of 150,000 words or 140. The final is hedging right around 100,000. I did maybe nine or ten drafts of it. I read the whole thing aloud several times. I worked the final chapter until it was like a a river rock in my mouth. Um, Hmm. it, It just took a lot of work. And it was, um, of all things, it was, it was a, an angry conversation with my father who had, uh, talked about, he read one of the Trump novels and was like, Max, you can't send this stuff out. You keep repeating words. And, and like, you know, this, this section, like what's this, what's going on with this sentence. And I had this 
great Dr. Frankenstein. I, I'll show them. They laughed at me at the Academy moment. I will take this manuscript and I will scour it to a fine sheen and I will polish it so anyone can see their reflection in it. Whatever it takes to push you over the edge, I guess. Uh, the amount of work that I did on that was just exponentially greater on Three Parts Dead than anything I'd done before. And it it really showed. And that's how I approach basically everything I write now. I try to go over it again and again and make it as strong as possible. You sort of build the block of marble first and then you start chipping pieces of it away until you have and then polishing it until you have the statue that you want, which I guess is going like way far beyond the, the confines of your initial question. Sorry, but <laughs> no, that's okay. it, it's, it all applies. It, it kind of branches off there. Sure, no problem. So what year was it that you sold to Tor? Um, so I wrote, started writing the thing in 2008, and then I think I got my agent in December of 2009 or 2010, and then the first, yeah, probably late 2010, early 2011 is when a lot of this stuff was going on. No, that's it. It was it was mid twenty ten. This is the wrong time of day to start asking me about calendar stuff. But yeah, <laughs> um, about a year before the book came out, uh, or a year and a half before the book came out, so mid to late twenty ten. Okay, that sounds to me like a very impressively compact journey from final draft to agent to editor. So well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, the the final draft to agent journey was by far the largest part of the process. It, yeah. it was it's kind of funny. I um. I wrote the book, I did a whole bunch of drafts, I sent it out, got a pretty solid number of nibbles on the initial manuscript, or on that final draft manuscript, request for full, and um, a lot of those didn't pan out, and there was some trepidation generally about, like, this doesn't really fit into any particular category, I don't know, I, I love this book, but I don't know if we could sell it. Could you put more bustles on people? Was it, it was huh. one of my favorite ones that kept coming up at various stages along along the process. More there was bustles. Some, well, I mean, there was some desire to remake it into a more like nineteenth century classic steampunk book from a lot of directions. Um, I was pretty resistant to that because I think a lot of the work really depends on a post-industrial setting and feel. But yeah, so a lot, a lot of comments like that. And I'd kind of gotten to the verge of trunking the book, actually. I'd written most of Two Serpents Rise just as a, you know, we'll just try something else. And then on a whim, a friend of mine kind of dared me to go back on sub with it after, you know, six months of taking it easy, rather than doing National Novel Writing Month to like take December and just send it out. So I put in a, a, a log line, just a one sentence summary of the book to an agent contest over on Operation Awesome, which is a very cool resource for people who are uh, trying to go through the agent hunt and getting their manuscripts together and all that. Really good people over there. Um, yeah, so one log line, agent bit it, liked it, asked for the full, sent it to her, and then things started happening really quickly. I'm really glad you resisted the drive to push it further towards steampunk. I think it's very important to the series that it be about modern sensibilities. I've recently been describing it as secondary world urban fantasy because of the yeah. of the panel you had at Vericon, which is a con where I moderated Max on two panels, where you said that there's no fundamental difference between a smartphone and a crystal ball in your setting. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, this is more true the more advanced our technology gets, and specifically the more transparent our technology gets. I, I remember, probably all of us remember, um, though maybe some of the younger listeners might not, uh, using a command line on a computer because that was what you needed to do in order to accomplish anything on a computer. Like I had my Apple II Plus, and you needed to be able to interface with that thing just by typing in text commands. So you needed to have a level of expertise in the system in order to make it do anything, which then made you conscious of the fact that there was a system. Now you can go a very long while using uh, using an iPhone, for example, and not really be conscious of the system at all. The whole notion of user experience design is to try to make you unconscious of the system. I don't think of this thing in my pocket as necessarily a computer. It's just a magic mirror that gives me information and responds to my vocal commands and allows me to, you know, invoke the football score or what the weather's going to be like three days from now. So when you said that you started writing Two Serpents Rise, considering uh, trunking Three Parts Dead, how do the books relate to each other? Would you be able to read all of them without having read the one before or in any order? That's the idea. I mean, I grew up reading an awful lot of epic fantasy series that would have years between books and then there would be no necessary conclusion to each particular book. So you'd kind of get to the next chapter of the story, but then you have to wait for a really long time. So I wanted to have books that would finish and that you could read sort of independently from one another. That way people could go on in basically any order. At the same time, I've been developing characters from book to book, and there's a lot of crossover, especially in Full Fathom 5, the most recent one. So ideally, you should be able to read these books in any order. The fifth one, which I'm writing right now, is probably the closest to a true sequel of anything I've done yet. But uh, of all of the books that are out now, should be able to come to it in any order. And if you've read all of them, then you know, good for you. There will be a lot more there for you, kind of hiding underneath the surface. But you shouldn't feel as though you're missing too much if you haven't read the others. It's worth pointing out here that you can the chronology is spelled out in the titles. So yes, it's true. There will be five of them. Three Parts Dead is the first and third book. Two Serpents Rise is the second and second book, and Full Five Them Five is the third and fifth book. Yes, I've um, I've started to feel like this was maybe me being way too clever for my own good, but I wanted to make it clear kind of where things fell on the chronology so you wouldn't be hunting around and people wouldn't be hunting around and, you know, Wikipedia and like, what order do all of these things go in? The numbers are right there. You can just put them in chronological order and then the publishing order is easy enough to determine by copyright date. So great. But then I've had people come like, oh, I thought this one was supposed to be before that one or that one was supposed to be before this other one. Hopefully it will all be clear if I just keep saying this over and over for the rest of my life. <laughs> Am I the only one that's confused by that? Did you say that it's the first and third book, Carl? <laughs> three, yes, Three Parts Dead happens after the second book, Two Serpents Rise, but it was published first. But you would also read it first, maybe. Yeah. Well, you would read it first if you started reading in 2012 and had no other options, or if you wanted to read it first in publication date. I've also been quietly tracking a thematic development among the five. Is it possible, Max, that you're trying to tell a story that makes sense three, two, five, one, four, independent of the one, two, three, four, five story? Or was that too confusing a question? I don't know what you could question? possibly mean, Carl. No, no, no. Um, 
Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm writing the books after one another, so they are in uh, conversation with one another, sort of necessarily. And book two is responding to a lot of stuff that's happening in book three, or in book one, rather. And book three is responding to a lot of stuff that's going on in the first two. And that's kind of continuing to happen. And Samuel R. Delaney mentions in a description of the Tales of Neverion that he kind of wanted to make a structure where the solution to each book was the problem of the next book, or the solution to each story was the problem of the next story. And that may be kind of what I'm going for. Certainly, I'm like in conversation with the work that I've written already before. So, yeah. It, and I do have schemey, like very long range plans for the sequence if if we keep running that far. So I am setting up some stuff for the future, but or and it's all so much fun and cackly. So does that mean you have plans for the world that extend beyond the five book sequence? Please say Oh yes. yeah. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like right now if I wanted to do nothing but write art plot after the five books that are sort of currently under contract and, you know, I'm working on the fifth one, if I wanted to do nothing else but write pure arc plot, then there's basically kind of three books that I could close everything out in, but that would be really accelerated. I'd be happy to do it, but I'd much rather get some more time to expand through the world a little bit and tell some more people's stories in the process. I have a lot of ideas for this. We'll see what happens. How did your natural or your, I guess, your background blend with things you had to research and, and kind of how did you grow with the writing of each book? Wow. Big question. Well. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. No worries. I mean, the question is really just how far we want to trace back the roots of the thing. Both of my folks were in divinity school when I was born. So I grew up around a lot of sort of world religious stories and also theology. I mean, my earliest conversations about God and things like that were probably drawing more off of early 20th century German existentialist theology than off of like, I don't know, the Ten Commandments or whatever. So that's always been an interest of mine. And then stories of gods and heroes from a huge number of different cultures have been a passion of mine since I was a kid. Some people grew up reading, you know, King Arthur stories and the tales of Cuchulain, and that's a part of my DNA too. But when I was 10, I discovered Journey to the West, which is this hundred chapter long martial arts, magical warfare epic about questing for scriptures that was written in the Ming Dynasty in China about 500 years ago. And it is amazing. It's comical and it's wild and weird and people transform into hundred story tall, six armed demon monsters with enormous quarterstaves to fight with one another and get tricked into locking themselves inside mountains. It's just wonderfully just mad and cool. And, you know, the Mahabharata is a book that's something like four times longer than the Bible. And it's this enormous Indian epic of intercultural warfare that, you know, wars that have billions of people taking place in them where like the entire half the entire world's population are dead and epics of love and strategy and betrayal and family, uh, family bonds and passions and the, the connections between students and teachers. And it's 
So, you know, and, and on top of everything, you have people running around and throwing fireballs at one another and like launching arrows that split into millions of arrows. And so there's this like cosmic scale to these myths that was has always been really important for me. And so following those paths has, have led me to run into a bunch of um, a bunch of the issues that I have been thinking about throughout the craft sequence. And another ingredient was probably the time that I was spending in uh, in rural Anhui province. I mean, I was out in sort of deep countryside, tea farming territory, and there were huge disparities of income and of background and of opportunity that were visible from my students to their parents to, to their parents. And I also had this sense of, gosh, just how much the world could change in the course of 50, 70 years that um, my older colleagues who were teaching at the school had stories about being involved in the Cultural Revolution, you know, trying to fight off Red Guards who were coming to trash the school's library and, uh, and break its collection of biological samples and just crazy stuff that got me thinking pretty hard about the usual fantasy trick of having several thousand years of dead history. You know, these gates have not been breached since 900 whatever in the reign of King this guy. <laughs> so that's the kind of background, like nebulous sense of how the universe fits together that I was bringing to these books. And then for each one, I've done pretty extensive research about the settings and about cultures that I was drawing tropes and, um, and sort of mythological visions from. And also about the underlying financial realities that I was trying to code into the setting so that I would be able to write something that would feel authentic. And there's just a lot of talking to people, too, you know, folks who work in the various industries that I'm lightly or viciously satirizing here or um, who sort of work around and get involved in legal cases and bankruptcy proceedings and financial transactions just to get a sense for how people talk and the kinds of things that they worry about. So yeah, lots of research and then sitting down to write at 9 a.m. in the morning with an awful lot of coffee and some good music that doesn't have any words in it in my earphones. So how do you think you improved as a writer between the books? Or I'll add, maybe to clarify, like what did you work on to improve? That's a good question. I mean, something I've been working on recently, last book or so, very consciously, is uh, a varying sentence structure and thinking about the rhythms of sentences. Word choice was a huge focus of mine in the first couple of books, and it remains something that I care a lot about. But I've sensitized myself enough to it that I tend to pick up most of the instances of overuse that would, that would otherwise bother me. Um, but right now, I've want to have a good balance within the course of a paragraph or a page between long rambling sentences and shorter, more intense sentences. Short is punchy. Personally, I have this tendency to kind of go on and be pretty digressive. And the digression is good, can be really good, so long as there's some variance. Otherwise, people can get bored. They can get bored with short stuff, and they can get bored with long stuff. So that's probably the area that my focus is on most currently, though that's also very kind of line by line writing stuff. Um, at the same time, I've, I've gotten to think a lot more about changing states within scenes and the sort of evolution of themes throughout the book. Like one of the focuses of revision in Full Fathom 5 was going through 
sort of scene by scene, especially in the early section of the book where there are a lot of issues and threats that may be more nebulous to a lot of the central characters and really paying attention to in this scene, what is bothering the character? How can we get to that as quickly as possible? Where's the confrontation? Which was part going through the books and working on that. And part of it was, you know, watching, reading books and trying to pay attention for how quickly that kind of information came up. I spent uh, several nights going scene by scene with episodes of The Wire, like what's happening here? How early does it happen? What state changes in each scene? I have notebooks full of this stuff. So yeah, so you, you work on the foundational writing level stuff and then the, um, and then the sort of larger schematic stuff too. Elizabeth Bear has this great schema for talking about uh, writing quality where you have the, the part of you that's aware, the part of you that can sense quality and the part of you that can produce quality. And over time, you know, in some states of your writing, the part of you that can produce quality outpaces the part of you that can sense quality. So you can produce and the part of you that's sensing quality is like, oh, my God, this is so good. This is like this is amazing. I'm, I'm on fire. I can do no wrong. And then the part of you that can sense quality catches up and sort of surpasses the level that you're currently capable of producing. And then you look back at maybe exactly the same piece of work and you're like, oh, this is such, what did I do? What have I gotten myself in for? And so like feeling that you've progressed may at the same time be this feeling that you've regressed actually, at least in my experience. The, the experience of progression can be an awareness of how much further you have to go. I'm glad you mentioned the work you did to develop how you write characters in particular, because I'm going to say something that might get me, you know, burned at the stake by angry fans, but I have read an advanced <laughs> copy of Full Fathom 5. This is one of my Excellent. adventures in science fiction publishing. I liked Two Serpents Rise, but I felt very much that because you focused so deeply on the dilemmas that your main character, Caleb, was going through, which th that book is really f about finding an answer to unanswerable questions, right? Uh, yeah. Irresolvable conflicts. And that's a really important thing to go through, but kind of a painful thing to read. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> absolutely. And I felt very much that Full Fathom 5 brought me back to the instant and ironclad engagement that I felt for the characters in three parts dead. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, Two Serpents Rise was a book where I was trying to present something that I feel and a lot of people I know feel is sort of difficulty of these insolvable problems. But there's a limit to how much you can do that without being able to particularize and dramatize the work that you're the, the kind of issues that you're facing. And that was a huge part of working with Full Fathom 5 going over and over and over again through the story to try to really crystallize the unsolvable parts of the situations that I was creating into very particular and kind of knowable situations and scenes that people could then engage with and have something lively happening around them. So hopefully that came out well. It sounds like you certainly were, were carried along by the characters through the story. Well, one thing that I think really served this is the fact that you went back to having uh, multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about the difference between writing something with one point of view and something with multiple? 
Sure. I really like multiple points of view. With Two Serpents Rise, it was kind of a personal challenge to write a narrative that worked exclusively through one person's eyes and to write a narrative that was um, kind of bound up in one person's limitations. One of the uh, strengths, but also weaknesses of the book. One of the complicated things about the book is that Caleb is kind of a dick sometimes and, and yes, like has, has very limited views of the people that he's encountering for like, that's kind of one of the recurring themes, but then you're stuck inside that character's head so you need to experience the world through the lens of their limited viewpoint. So whether that worked in the long run, I, I don't know. I tried to have people calling him out on his problems sort of regularly, but there's a limit to how much you can do that before you feel like you're beating the reader in the face with a cricket bat. Then again, maybe some more cricket bat would have helped the book do what it was doing better. The great part about writing multiple POVs is that you can really get a sense of different perspectives on this weird multifaceted jewel that we call reality or life or even story. So in Full Fathom 5, I have characters from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, specifically, we have kind of two mains who are weaving in and out of one another. And we have Kai, who's from a, who's basically a, what we would consider to be a relatively high class professional. She's um, you know, she, she's, the, she's the kind of person who wears suits to work. She has a mortgage that she's in the process of paying off in due time. Um, she's a little bit distant from her family. She's massively overworked. Her firm will pay for a taxi if she stays too late, that kind of situation. And meanwhile, we have Iza, who is living a lot closer to the line, who's, you know, a refugee without any clear status on the island of Cavacana, where the story is taking place, and whose people are, um, for the most part, sort of beggars and street thieves and um, folks without a real determined home in the society or at constant risk of getting, you know, picked up and kicked out of the, kicked off the island or kicked out of the country. So having those two people experience exactly the same setting from these radically different perspectives then gave the setting a lot more richness. But I also needed to work harder to make sure that the languages that they were using and the ways that they were responding to the world around them were, were distinct. Um, I was thinking a lot about, a lot in writing this book, uh, sort of subconsciously about uh, China Mavels, the city and the city, which I liked tremendously and gets into this question of sort of different perspectives on, on one location. So on the one sense, it's really liberating. You can get terribly bound up inside one person's head and inside one person's problems, and it's great to be able to shift over. On the other hand, and, it, and it's helpful to be able to build a universe through different viewpoints. In fact, that's the only way to build a complete universe. If you're looking at it through one person's eyes, you're only ever getting their eyes, the lens of their eyes. But then you're stuck trying to make sure that the pacing works between all of the various pieces and that people are kind of throwing the ball to and from one another elegantly, which was a special challenge in this book because Kai and Iza spend a lot of the first section not really running into one another and chasing aspects of their own stories. That was something that I had to work on really hard to make sure that the scenes were happening in the right order, the timing kind of fit together properly and that we understood when the paths were crossing and when, when they weren't. Carl, did you have a second to mention about the short story of Max's? Sure. So the specific work I do for Tor.com is that I am, I started out uh, in this phase of my life as a fiction assistant 
coordinating stories at, for Tor.com's original fiction program. Next week, we have an original story from Max, which is not tied to the craft sequence. Uh, title is The Angelus Guns. It comes out on Wednesday and will go live on the site at 9 a.m. Max, you should really explain it because there's too much in it for me to completely encapsulate. <laughs> Woo! Now, it's a really cool story. Uh, it's There's too much in it for me to completely encapsulate either. It's kind of a time travel rebellion in heaven, nanomachines in the blood, Easter rising girl going to try to find her brother who's run off to join the rebels sort of story about temporal gardening and how time lords are kind of creepy and and and, and wings are cool and uh, and there are some burning swords in it and it's totally great i think or i hope basically we have a young woman who happens to have wings and be immortal but that's another story never mind who's going off to try to save her brother from getting killed in the middle of this uh, enormous rebellion in the crystal city that exists outside of time fun I can't help smiling when I hear the full description. <laughs> <laughs> that is, it's a really, it's a, it's a great and wild story. You, you should all check it out. It is coming out the day after Max's book, which drops Tuesday, July fifteenth. Got my hands rubbing together. Very excited. And Max, when are you going to write a novella for the Tor.com imprint that we just started? Oh, I have enormous schemes about that. Actually, I probably should share some of them with you. Yeah, you should share them with me and Marco so that we can eventually translate them into the future. Okay, excellent, excellent. Making deals live on air. There are many schemes, so many schemes, Carl, you have no idea. There can't be enough. Soon, as uh, as they say on the internet. Well, I'm excited to keep going in with uh, Three Parts Dead. It's, It's very impressive stuff. It's a pleasure to meet you, Max and Carl. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thank you for letting me be here. Thanks so much, Timothy. Okay, folks, go out and buy Max's books and check out his short story on Tor.com on Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. To find out more about our show, our team, our reviews and articles, and so much more, head to adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com. If you're an author, go tap those keys. And if you're a reader, I guess that means you should go read. Till next time, folks, keep it sci-fi. Sci-fi.